Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. I'm Sandra Davidson. And I am Anita Rao. And we are She and Her. And we're really excited to bring you part two in our An Unmothered Daughter episode series. So last week you heard an excerpt from an end-of-life conversation between Lauren Flaum and her daughter, Georgia. Remind us who Georgia is, Anita? Yeah, so Georgia is one of my all-time best friends. We grew up together. We met the summer before sixth grade um, and have remained very close ever since. Um, Went to college in two different places but lived together in New York for about three years. You grew up together and met during the most awkward phase you could probably Oh, completely, yeah. (laughs) I still had my big red and brown speckly glasses. That's a true friend. Yeah, it really is. She really, you know, embraced me when I was not at my best. (laughs) Um, But this Saturday actually marks the fourth anniversary of Lauren's death. Um, Lauren being Georgia's mom, as I just said. And a couple of months ago, Georgia was visiting me for the weekend, and you and I invited her to come into the studio and reflect on what the past four years have been like. And she and I have had occasional conversations about her mom and about her grieving process, but it's never something you know, that just comes up in daily conversations. So it was really special to have time to really look at this head on and for us to be able to ask her to reflect pretty honestly about what the experience has been like. Um, And it was special for me because Lauren was also a really important person in my own life. Um, She is incredibly wise. And really from when I met her when I was 11, um, became a really important mentor and sort of second mother for me of sort of giving me advice and giving me encouragement. Um, She was that to a lot of people in Iowa City. She was. She really was. She was an incredibly well-loved figure in Iowa City throughout the community, both within um, the Jewish community. She was very active in the synagogue and very active in the school board, but also just sort of to anyone that passed um, through their doors and that came into Georgia or her brother's life. Um, So Georgia reflected on all of that um, and started her conversation with us talking about sort of who Lauren was and her very dynamic personality. So we're going to start with a clip that sort of highlights... um, who Lauren was in the community. Uh, my mom was a very interesting character. She was beloved. So she was the youngest of 10 cousins, and the cousins were more like siblings 
because they all grew up within a five-minute drive from each other in East Meadow, New York. And um, my mom was the youngest of 10. She was kind of babied in that sense, but she was also independent because her older siblings were eight and 10 years older than her. So for a lot of her life, she was kind of like an only child. And um, her mom came to rely on her as like a friend and to kind of keep her sane (laughs) when her older kids were giving my grandma a lot of trouble. My mom was always like the goody two shoes. (laughs) And... uh, My mom studied art in college, and I know that one of her major regrets was that while she did tons of different things in her life, she never had a career or a career path, and she always encouraged me to think about that when I was making decisions about my life. But um, she went from being supported by her father to being supported by her husband, and that was another regret. She always kind of wished that she was an independent woman and wanted that for me as well. But in her life, she was an extremely creative person. Actually, one of her first jobs out of college was the pastry chef for the mayor of New York. She was self-taught. She just kind of interned for the head chef. And so that's something that I always brag about was that she was the chef for the mayor of New York. (laughs) That is also, I mean, pastry chef, that's quite a thing to be self-taught. Yeah. I know. She was a very quick learner, and and she could kind of pick anything up quickly. So... Every area of the arts she ended up exploring, not only exploring, but kind of excelling at. So when she moved to Iowa, she got involved in um, drama, and she became a playwright and a director and a costume designer and a set designer. So she would do these children's theater productions for, like, the synagogue and for community theater, and they were always volunteer. And she played every part. So she was a costume designer. She hand-sewed all the costumes, she painted all the sets, she wrote the plays, she directed it, she coordinated the music, um, and that was just something she really loved doing. She was a painter, a quilter. An amazing chef. An amazing chef. She was like, she cooked for so many people all the time. Every Friday night we would have Shabbat dinner, and she would let me invite whoever I wanted, and she would always make the food stretch, even if 10 minutes before (laughs) dinner. I would announce that 10 more people were coming over. There's one story about her creativity that I was just thinking about in that. So the way that our friendship began, we had this like intense summer of spending literally every day together between 6th and 7th grade. And I would call your house every morning at like 10 a.m. And either I'd go straight to voicemail or your mom would answer and be like, Georgia's not awake yet, Anita, but I will definitely let her know that you called when she woke (laughs) up. But she would just create these amazing days for us, like the day that we did that spa day. Yep. And she, like, made this, like, avocado, like, face, face mask. mask. And, like, we were in your, like, in their, like, sunroom. She made us, like, fresh lemonade. We had this avocado face mask. We had these, like, cucumber eye things. And she just, like, created this, like, amazing experience for us. And we were, like, how old were we? I don't know. Twelve. Twelve. And it was like, how, why do you put the energy into these yes. things? She would, she would create, so one time she created a haunted house, and she built a fable around the haunted house in our barn about a couple named Mel and Rose. 
and we live on Melrose Avenue. Oh my god! And so that they, she created this whole love story that ended in tragedy, but that love won in the end, and that was kind of the basis of the haunted house. And this was open to everyone in, in the neighborhood. You could just come in for free, and you would be taken through this haunted house, and each room would be a different part of the story. And it had all the traditional haunted house things. But she did it just for like for fun. No one asked her to do it. Yeah. She would do the same thing in the summer. She created like a summer camp for free that anyone could just come to and it culminated in a carnival for the entire neighborhood and the whole week was just creating the carnival and it was like completely coming from within Mm -hmm. and she was doing this while she was in chemotherapy like she nothing would stop her it was totally bizarre i also feel like gift giving was like a creative act that your mom she just like gave the best gift yeah so i'll tell the three great gifts. so when i turned 12 Um, she reached out to 12 women in my life, aunts or grandmas or close family friends, and asked them to pick out their favorite book when they were 12. And at the time, I was really into cats. So (laughs) (laughs) there were multiple parts to this present, but she bought hardcover copies of the 12 books that the 12 women loved when they were 12. She mailed them out to each of the 12 women and had them write a note about why the book was meaningful to them and then pasted it into the book. And then she made these bookends with cats on them that she made. And that was the gift. That is so (laughs) next level. (laughs) And then when I was 16, she wrote me um, a cookbook of 16 of my favorite baked goods that she makes. She hand wrote all the recipes. And then when I was 18, she wrote me another book of life advice, 18 essays that she also, she typed them up first and then wrote it all by hand. That is beautiful. (laughs) Yeah. Maybe we should read one of the essays now. Maybe love or those effing 10 pounds. Yeah, I'll start with those effing 10 pounds. Okay. (laughs) So this one's called those effing 10 pounds. Every woman I have ever known has them, those 10 pounds that, when shed, all is right and light in her world. And when she carries them, walks around mumbling under her breath, I wish I could drop those effing 10 pounds because then my love life, my wardrobe, the toppling piles of unfinished work on my desk would all improve. Unfortunately, the mumbling is not a terribly effective weight loss program. So something else, the digging underwire, the cinching waistband, the willingness to stop blaming the dryer... We'll have to flip the switch to get her back on a fitter, slimmer path. For me, the barometer of those effing 10 pounds is my relationship with butter. When I'm feeling lean and swift and ready in the world, I simply eschew butter. Butter, I say, who needs that rich, gluttonous excess? That's for the weak of will, the uninventive, the slovenly. I am just fine without it, and I am. But when winter or cancer or other troubles come knocking, it is to butter that I turn. First, in light, creamy spreads and melted drizzles. Then, soon enough, in dense, airless hunks like cheese. On bread and potatoes and anything else game to support its spectacular lightness of being. And then, like clockwork, those ten pounds are sitting back on my hips and thighs and tush. So what's a girl to do? Food is one of life's consistently great comforts and pleasures. Meal after meal after meal, and still, we're looking forward to the next one. Necessity, luxury, art form, tradition, diversion, variety, warmth, ritual, color, texture, and yet equal to its pleasure is its power to make us a little miserable. Ah, the paradox. Fortunately, 
I've learned over the years that my single best antidote to butter and the effing 10 pounds is effing movement of the effing body. (laughs) In college, I joined the squash team, humiliating myself daily amongst the blonde and long-legged, just so I could eat a slice of butter-laden triple-layer chocolate cake for dessert at dinner, and it was worth it. Mm. Now, as an adult, I found the joy of the daily walk with a friend. A walk and a talk is exercise for the mind, body, and soul. Teresa has walked with me through so much, almost eight years of daily walks and talks. Movement keeps the body flowing, and a body in motion stays in motion. When I had the experience of the Tahara, of washing a dead woman's body, what struck me the hardest was her absolute stillness. Lifelessness was the lack of movement. The difference between the living and the dead is the ability to move. So if 18 is life and life is movement, keep in mind that you need to figure out a way to keep moving, to work up a sweat. Another of life's great pleasures is a hot shower on a sweaty body, especially as you feel those effing 10 pounds just flow like melted butter down the drain. That's Georgia Flaum telling us a lot about her mother, Lauren Flaum, who died four years ago on July 2nd after living with breast cancer for 17 years. So first of all, there's a lot in that butter essay, which is is. so beautiful and so real for a lot of women, I think. And, you know, one of the things that really strikes me about Georgia's loss and about her relationship with her mother is that she barely remembers the time when her mother didn't have breast cancer mm-hmm. because her mother was diagnosed when she was in the first grade. So for 17 years forward, her mother was living with the illness or the disease. And that has always really stood out to me when I thought about what that experience must have been like. And we asked her to talk a lot about that and reflect on that. But what's interesting, and you'll hear a little bit about this in the next segment, is that even though her mother was sick for so long, very chronically sick, Georgia and her brother were really shielded from that anxiety, from that um, stress, and her initial prognosis wasn't good. Yeah. Um, and I remember, I think, as being a friend of Georgia's, I would often check in and be like, how is your mom doing? Because there were some of these visible signs, like her her cancer was very interesting that it manifested a lot in the skin so she would have like bandages around her arms or you'd sort of notice differences in how she appeared and it didn't feel like Georgia was necessarily avoiding talking about it but it felt like it was something that her mom wasn't really letting her in on so mm-hmm. there was a sense that like you know she's going through a different experimental treatment like things are up or things are down but Georgia seems to more recently have discovered that the details of it were something that she shared much more with her husband, Michael, than with her kids, Georgia and Chester. Yeah, I've thought a lot about this episode has made me really think a lot about how adults shield kids and children from difficult things and how now as an adult, how hard and how conscious you must be to do so. Yeah. So... Um, In this next segment, Georgia talks a little bit about what it was like to grow up not knowing how long her mother had to live. Yeah, well, she was very protective over us. And um, I think the truth is that she and and my dad had a a challenging relationship. And she really didn't keep anything from him. And he had to deal with a lot of that misery, which was uh, 
explains a lot about my childhood. Um, my dad and I are extremely close right now, but we were a little bit more distant when I was growing up. And um, I think she did create these boundaries. And she also would use creative outlets for that as well. Um, so she, I found it a lot in her writings that she would talk about all the feelings that she would not speak about to me but she was having these thoughts and getting them out on paper and speaking to my dad about them. But she was very protective of how the experience she might create for us if she let us know what was really going on. And she kind of always thought she was going to die. So I think she was surprised when she made it to when, you know, when I was 14. She was surprised that she was around when I was 17, when I was 19. And so I think she, she just made a big effort to protect us from the pain hmm. because she could see how much it was affecting us without her having to go into it. Did you feel like you grew up having that same sense that she was going to die? Or Yes. Really? Mm-hmm. Yeah. It was, it was, I mean, it was a huge part of my life. She was diagnosed when I was in first grade. So I remember that my dad had pneumonia, and he was sick for about three weeks, And then shortly after, my mom was diagnosed with cancer, and I associated the two as the same because I think they must have just told me that, oh, dad's sick, and then, oh, mom's sick. (laughs) And then I remember cancer came up in first grade, and I raised my hand. I was like, oh, my mom has that. And then my teacher had to pull me aside and be like, like, what's going on at home? (laughs) And Mm -hmm. it was kind of this bigger deal than I Mm -hmm. thought. But that year when I was in first grade, so she was diagnosed with stage four, although they didn't even call it that back then. But technology has developed so much since then that if she were in the same position today, it would have been detected far sooner. Um, But she was basically given like nine months to live. So everyone in my life came to Iowa to visit and to take care of us and to say goodbye. And that was all when I was six and seven. From that point on, I think I I realized that what I had going on there was temporary Mm. and that I shouldn't learn to depend on it. And it made me very independent as a kid. I always dressed myself. I was like the first one out the door. I was terrified of being late. I was very controlling. Um, I was a perfectionist. And it was all because I didn't feel like I was going to have the cushion of my parents to kind of fall back on. Mm. And I think that's just, yeah, that's had a big impact on who I am as a person now. Did you ever have one-on-ones where your mom wanted to talk with you about the illness and talk with you directly about how you were dealing with it and how you were doing when you were Yeah, I don't think that ever happened. Yeah. (laughs) We were, it was very tense. I mean, she was in remission for four and a half years. That was like from age seven to, I guess, like 11 and a half. Uh And then when I was in sixth grade, she was diagnosed again. And then when I was in ninth grade, again, I remember when I was in ninth grade, they bought me like the entire, like, I think it was seasons four, five, and six of Friends. And it was like, (laughs) mom has cancer here. And that was the coping. I mean, it was, we really, it was pretty avoidant. And um, my mom would like talk about family therapy, but to me, that was like vomit. Like I would would never even consider that. Mm. And so there really wasn't a lot of conversation about it. My memory of her illness is much more focused on the time when she died and the year before that than Mm. it is about my entire life where it was something she was coping with. And Mm. I think it's because she worked so hard to make her life not about cancer. Mm. Yeah, I mean, she was was sick for 17 years before she died. And because of that, uh, life was very precious to her. And she felt like she had a lot to lose. And she appreciated life in a way that other people don't. And she made decisions about her life in a way that I think other people might not because she knew how terminal it all was. It's almost like all of the energy 
of worry was kind of like present in each day. So mm. she embodied this like spirit of, of life and love and energy that I think is kind of missing in my life now. Georgia described in that clip, um, Lauren was pretty private with her pain, but she did process it a lot through creative outlets, and she was an avid writer for much of her life, um, and especially sort of toward the end, she was writing a lot. She had weekly writing sessions with a writing partner, um, was writing a lot of essays that she hoped to develop into a book, and had this project that she called the Thousand Days Project, and it was both sort of a writing exercise to encourage herself to write every single day, but also as a way of sort of marking time in this time period where she was struggling and, you know, days could sort of run into one another. And so it was counting down and she didn't make it all a thousand days. I think she made it about 200 or some of those days. Wow. Um, But since she has passed away, Georgia has made it her project to edit and call through her mom's writing with the hopes of eventually publishing a book one day of her mom's essays um, I love that project. Yeah, it's an Kudos amazing to you, Georgia. It's an amazing project, and she started a private blog where she's going through these writings. Um, and Lauren's writings themselves have been a really um, important thing to Georgia, just as a way of really tapping into a side of her mom that she maybe didn't always have access to, but also as a way of sort of witnessing and re-witnessing her wisdom, um, which you mm-hmm. know. As Georgia talked about and as we heard last week, you know, she just like spoke these gems all of the time and she really wrote those as well. So her writing is filled with those. Um, and so we one of Georgia's favorite pieces out of her mom's work is an essay that she wrote about pain that sort of sheds light on Lauren's experience with pain that was kept kind of private from Georgia. And um, sh- we asked her to read a portion of that essay for us or actually the whole essay. So here she mm-hmm. is reading pain. Imagine you are a curious lover, the kind that cares for the details behind every little scar, that knows they each tell a story somehow dear to your beloved's heart. Imagine then that when it comes to pain, real, physical, ongoing, relentless pain, you want to hear description. You want the word picture painted. It's not a show. It's not for the effect. It's because you really are curious to know what the pain is like. So you can share, if not the experience, then at least the language of it. So your eyes can go soft when she winces, as if out of nowhere, lightning bolts of pain right there in the midst of a most ordinary sentence. Then I would say, let's gather the implements so we can begin. Kitchen's the best place to start, so full of daily tools of survival. The sharp wide blade of the chef's knife, steak knives, the pointy tip of the paring knife, the wide serrated edge of the bread knife, the corkscrew, the sharpening steel that can get heated up to resemble a hot poker, particularly instrumental in the middle of the night. The thin edge of the box cutter, the can and jar and bottle openers, the twin points of the corn holders, the cheese plane, the carving fork, the electric knife, the blender, the coffee grinder, shards and shards of a broken wine glass. Each of these implements can be neatly paired with a particular sensation in a particular place at a particular time. For example, out of nowhere, I can feel the boring of the corkscrew into the swollen thumb joint. Twist, turn, twist. Ask away, lover, when does this happen? Will you point it out so I can know what you're feeling when you're feeling it? 
we can make a name for it, and we can wish it away together under the moon, which is where it needs to go back to. But first, let's move to the bathroom, where we'll find files and astringents, the tiny sharp blades of a nail scissor, the razors, the electric head shaving tool. I keep candles and matches there, as I do in the kitchen, too. Tweezers, flat-edged and pointed. We don't need to go all the way out to the barn where the chainsaw lives. That would be overkill. Just down to the tool room in the basement. Screwdrivers and drill sets. Hammers, mallets, electrical voltage meters, and stripped wires and cables. Rough-hewn rope and all grades of sandpaper. While in the basement, I don't want to miss the clothespins that feel as they are clipped onto each fingernail. Nor the overly large collection of pins, needles, scissors, and a hot glue gun with ample refills of the hot glue sticks that get surprisingly, impressively hot. Now we could play a matching game, my curious lover and me. On one side, we could list all the domestic tools of torture, each designed to aid and abet the living of daily life. You could cook and sew and mend. You can hang a picture and sand down the antique dresser till it's smooth as skin. And then on the other side, we could map out diseased portion of body and try to construct the most gruesome combinations, number seven sandpaper on deep, unhealing wounds, curved upholstery needles poking in and out, fingers so swollen they look more like cucumbers but feel like a constant pulsing pain. I know at some point even Loverboy loses interest. Enough already. Buck up. Put your clothes back on and let's go out to eat. I guess the last great hope for a woman like me is the soft, drippy eyes. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. So Georgia was a year out of college when her mother died, and it was 2012. She'd moved to New York and was really forging into a very exciting um, adult, exhilarating, wide-open kind of life. She was really ambitious. You can probably speak a little bit more, Anita, to what was going on with her that year. Yeah, we were both living in New York at the same time. she was working at a very high-end restaurant um, and sort of worked her way up very quickly and sort of that crazy New York restaurant lifestyle where you get off at midnight and then your social life begins at 12.30 a.m. <laughs> um, she was dating a very intense boyfriend and they had a very dramatic relationship and just sort of that feeling like your first year out of college where you're really getting your bearings and what adult life looks like. Um, so it was a pretty challenging time for 
her to sort of p- feel pulled into yeah. places. Yeah, and in April 2012, she got a call from her parents asking her to come home to Iowa City, and she went home in April, and her mother told her she had decided she was no longer going to seek treatment. And she went back to New York, came back again in June, and lived in Iowa City for the month following until her mother died. And I was actually living in Iowa City there, too. That was then, too. That was the first time I'd ever met Georgia, and I just remember spending time with her and being so aware of how difficult that period of time was. And Georgia remembers that time as the most challenging part of her grieving process, losing her mom. And in this next segment, she talks about what that period of time was like. I had my first apartment and my first boyfriend and my first job. And I was loving all three. And they were all very wild and dramatic. I was working at this fancy restaurant and going out every night and I had a very crazy relationship with a very intense person and um, the last thing I wanted to do was to give that all up and I know I knew it wasn't giving it all up but even putting it on pause made me feel like I might never get it back mm. and so I resisted coming home as long as possible they, they flew me home in April of 2012 to tell me that my mom had made the decision to end treatment And what that meant was that she had between a month and a year to live. And she ended up dying on July 2nd. So it was less than three months after that. And um, I think I I was only home for maybe 48 hours. And it was that day was harder than any following day. Hmm. It it almost felt like she was committing suicide. Like Hmm. she had given up hope and she was choosing to leave us when she could have chosen to stay. And um, I don't still think of it that way, but I remember thinking of it that way then. And I'm kind of glad that that day happened because it made the rest of it easier. And it's actually become kind of easier. Like that that day was still the peak of my pain hmm. with this whole thing, I think. And um, anyway, I told my I told my parents that they should just tell me when it was like a month out and I would come home. And that was <laughs> it's like it sounds so selfish to think of it that way. But I knew that they wanted me to be living my life, too. And the last thing my mom wanted was to be disruptive to a healthy experience. And so they did call me, and they were like, okay, now's the time. And so I kind of put everything on pause and came home, and it was horrible. <laughs> I spent – I mean, I I think between, like, May 20th and July 2nd when she died, I spent a few hours with her. It was a lot of just, like, her in her room and me in my room with the door closed like Skyping with my boyfriend and being moody and being miserable. So I do have regrets about that period because I really wasn't able to overcome my fear of connecting. There's a really interesting article. I think it's called The Unmothered, and it came out a few years ago. But it talks about stages of grief, um, not in the stages of grief after someone dies, but there's um, categorizing it by pre-grief grief and post-grief. And pre-grief is all the feelings you have when you know someone's going to die. Grief is the feelings that you have when your life is on hold because someone just died. So you don't have to go to work. Everyone's sending you cards and flowers and knows what's going on in your life. And then Mm -hmm. post-grief is the feelings you have about the death once you've returned to your normal life. And people, if you think of it as a pie chart, it's broken up different ways for people. And my experience has been 
5% of my pain was pre-grief. What I'm saying is that most of the suffering that I felt was in like the six weeks before she died. Mm. And it was unbelievable how much less horrible I felt after she died than I thought I would. And I think it's just because it was I was putting so much pressure on myself to make the, this period count and was completely unable to do that. Mm. And I was like on top of all of the fear of what it would be like without her, I was beating myself up for not being the person I wanted to be. And that I felt like there was a lot of forg- forgiveness after she died that like that period was okay. Hmm. Um, but I, I, I was definitely not able to connect. And I would find ways to combat that. I did a lot of, you know, I did a lot of creative projects during that time, actually. Hmm. Mm-hmm. I compiled all of her recipes. She used to clip out any recipe from like magazines or newspapers. And she would put them in a file folder. And I glued them into a binder like in, I could have scanned them and uploaded them <laughs> but I just like glued them into a binder and I sorted them by category and that took like two weeks when I finished that project I took all of her writings which most of them were like printed out right. they weren't even digital and I scanned them all and I collected them all and I was very focused on like tactile things that I could do rather than um conversations yeah. or really being there well I am Really glad to hear that you have been forgiving yourself because I spent some time with you during that time I was living in Iowa City. Coincidentally, we all have an Iowa City connection. <laughs> um, but I just remember not even being able to comprehend what you were going through. And given the circumstance of, you know, starting your life in New York and then coming home and your mother had been sick for so very long. And I'm sure that to imagine suddenly what it is to f- arrive at the end of that process for your family and for yourself that I, I wouldn't even begin to know what that would be like but I just knew it was really hard yeah it wasn't even it wasn't even sad it was just miserable like it was that period was the worst experience of my life like there was like so much beauty in like the night before her death and like her death itself and the weeks after like that was a I think back very fondly on that time but 48 hours before she died and then six weeks before that was just I couldn't my dad and I couldn't be in the same room Mm -hmm. he lost like 60 pounds in two months we couldn't eat we couldn't talk and I mean a big part of it was like I couldn't I couldn't bring myself to be there physically yeah and I think that's a lot of the regret that I have too yeah it was just too hard I mean she was her her illness was very gruesome um her body started dying before she did and so it was just kind of a medical mess. And she chose to be at home rather than in a hospital. But that posed a lot of challenges. And she had a, a hospice nurse five days a week, but not on the weekends. And um, so I, I just couldn't, I mean, I try to think about what it would be like if I could do it again or if I was older. But I just couldn't bring myself to be a part of the the physical part of her death um, until the very last night. Which I think is worth talking about. Yeah, I'd love to, I would love <laughs> yeah. for you to take us there. Um, they think that she actually died um, from, she died of thirst because she couldn't, she wasn't able to eat for about the last two weeks of her life. She could only eat like a couple things and then starting maybe 72 hours before she couldn't swallow anything. So she wasn't drinking either. And so she was like delirious and what 
ended up happening was right before you die, you get very uncomfortable. Mm. You can't stay in the same position, but you also can't really support your own body. So it's like she was lying down. Every 15 minutes, she'd try to get up to, like, go to the bathroom, but she couldn't really walk. And I know it sounds, like, tragic what I'm talking about, but it was actually hilarious. (laughs) (laughs) It was very, like, we were – we had kind of turned a corner at this point where it was like, okay – this is happening. Let's just embrace it. And I mean, we all knew that it was going to happen, but it was uh, very stressful to think about when. And it, like once it was revealed, there was a bit of relief. And when my dad would try to tell her that like she had to just keep lying down and we'd just reposition her, she just kept saying, you're not the boss of me. You're not the boss of me. <laughs> <laughs> and then on the, on the last... <laughs> We were sleeping very odd hours, and I remember waking up at, like, 4 in the morning, and both of my parents were at the top of the stairs. And I, I think I I looked at them, and I said, like, where are you guys going? And they both, like, burst into laughter because the idea that they would actually be going anywhere <laughs> other right. than the hallway of the bedroom and the, between the hallway and the bedroom and the bathroom was, like, hilarious for some reason, and that was a memory. But then on the very last night, we just played Lucinda Williams – all night long and sang along and that I remember it was a Sunday night and her hospice nurse was going to come on Monday and we just couldn't wait for the morning we were just like when's it going to be morning and then at like 7 a.m. I called my mom's best friend who's a doctor who lives in Denver and I said I think it's time to come and she got on a plane like two hours later Wow! and um, someone brought us blueberry muffins and that's when the hospice nurse came. And then we, at that point, we thought it was going to be like a week. But she ended up dying a few hours later. Wow. Was she able to, like, speak and engage that last morning? Yes. Or? And I had this, like, classic corny moment. Like, the last thing I said to her was, like, I love you. Thank you for being such a great mom. <laughs> and she said, like, I love you, too. And it was, like, totally straight out of, like, I kind of hate that that was my <laughs> last experience. Like, so unoriginal. But that's what happened. Wow. Yeah. That is Georgia reflecting on um, the last few weeks that she spent with her mother. And it has now been four years since Lauren died. The Saturday marks um, four years. And Georgia's grieving process has really evolved over time. And we've had occasional conversations about it. Um, I mean, it's changed a lot over time. It has. Yeah. And we lived in New York together. And she continues to live in New York. She's now working for a company called One Fine Stay which is a high-end hospitality group. She's the New York guest services (laughs) manager, and it's kind of a perfect job for her because she gets to meet with celebrity clients and is really living the life in New York City. Um, For a while, she was part of a support group with other people who had lost parents to cancer. And so I think, you know, her story and, and the way that she's reflected on it with us really demonstrates this notion that grief is non-linear and that you know, you never know what part of the process is going. You're going to be in at any given time, and different experiences and events can really evoke different emotions. I know one thing that Georgia and I talk about a lot is on Mother's Day. There's been this recent 
trend on social media lately where people just go wild on Mother and Father's Day and like, mm. everyone is posting photos, retrospective photos of them and their parents. And I remember when that started, I think that like really became a huge thing the year after Lauren died, actually. And George and I were talking a lot about that. And one piece of advice her mom gave to her was for her to treat herself every Mother's Day. And so she told her to buy a pair of shoes. So in every Mother's mm. Day since Lauren passed away, Georgia's bought herself a pair of shoes. Um, but she described to us what her life has been like since her mom passed away and um, how her grieving process has evolved the past four years. I found a lot of distractions in the year following. Um, I stayed in a relationship that I probably should have gotten out of much sooner because I was afraid to be alone. I didn't even like being in a room alone for the first, like, six months. And that relationship was very dramatic, and it caused kind of pressing drama in my life that overcame any potential feeling that I might have of loss. And after a year later, I was out of that relationship, and then I was very focused on being single and and starting a new job. And it was only maybe seven months after that that I realized, I think it was maybe a friend or my therapist who recommended this um, support group. I had to get in touch because it was supposed to be within a year, and I had them make an exception for for me because I told them that I'd blocked off the first year and it shouldn't count. <laughs> and so I think it was it was a combination of case. yeah I think it was a combination of just like finally being over the relationship that I had used as a shield, hmm. and um, I do think that I chose to be in that relationship because I knew it would be more dramatic than the death. And that 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 would prevent me from having to think about it. And so after I got out of it, after I came to terms with the fact that it wasn't part of my life anymore, that's when I was kind of willing to to open up. And I do think there's like a, a, a big connection between the loss of my mother and how I feel about men and, and that mm-hmm. kind of intimacy. And it's a, a big thing that I talk about in therapy that it's it's common for people to seek the intimacy they had from their parents in intimacy they have with their lovers and that it's very important to realize that your romantic partner is never going to replace that relationship mm-hmm. and that it's completely separate and people kind of spend their entire lives seeking that connection mm-hmm. when it's not there. So that's something that I think about a lot. Yeah. What do you – who do you turn to now? What do you – do in situations where you feel like you want to call your mom or you want her advice do you ever yeah, do you ever like meditate on her and try mm-hmm. to commu- like communicate with her is there anything that you do that, to connect with her so my mom was such like a, a powerful person in her life that um, it kind of put my dad in a corner during their entire relationship and um, she just took up so many spots that when she died, my dad kind of changed instantly. And I can I can visualize this change. Like, between the two of them, she was covering so much ground that when she was gone, it allowed him to take over a lot of what she was doing. And so he really, his personality changed when she died, and he became much more maternal and empathetic and warm and loving. And I think he would agree with this. Not that he wasn't before. He just didn't have room to express it in the same way because he was boxed into the caregiver Mm. um, and the strong supporter and never able to be really effusive. And so after she died, our relationship changed instantly. I've never experienced such a dramatic shift in my life than 
the we couldn't stand each other in the six weeks before she died. Mm. We couldn't be in the same room. We couldn't have a conversation. It was t- way too tense. And then it was like we were completely dependent on each other as soon as she died. So I really feel like my experience would be extremely different if my dad hadn't kind of taken over a lot of the the role that my mom had played. And I, I know from other people in my support group that they had very different experiences, that their dad um, reacted different ways when their mom died than, than being supportive. But hmm. he he and I talk five times a week. He's like, he knows everything about my life. There are no boundaries between us, and which I think is fine since I'm in my late 20s now. <laughs> I think it would have been a problem if I was younger. But um, we're more like I, I, I look up to him so much, but we do have kind of a peer relationship in some ways, which I never would have expected. If he weren't there for me, I think I would have a very different experience with grief than I have had. But I don't spend a lot of time alone thinking about her. I think I'm afraid of kind of how it would feel. Mm -hmm. But I do get really upset when I think about how likely she won't know the person that I end up with if I settle down with someone and she won't know my kids. And I mean, so much has changed in my life since she died. It's just exhausting to think about how much more is going to happen that she won't know. Mm. And it makes me sad to think that she only was able to experience such a small percentage of who I feel like I am. Mm. But I couldn't be who I am today without her. Like, I am who I am because of the experience of living with someone who was dying and the way that she lived her life. Thank you, thank you, thank you, Georgia, for sharing such meaningful and thoughtful reflection, for being so open about your grief, and for inviting us into some of your mother's writings. They're really, really powerful and moving. Yeah. Anita, what has this been like for you to work on this episode, to work through these things with Georgia? I mean, as we talked about at the top of the show, Lauren meant a lot to you. Georgia means a lot to you. I wonder what this process has been like. Yeah, it's been um, really great, actually. I remember, so I put together the the section of the story corner interview that you all heard last week. I actually had put together right before Lauren's funeral with the original intention of playing a segment or playing that segment at the funeral. And then a few days before, we were talking with George's dad, and we sort of realized that may not be the best decision. It might be sort of hard for people to hear her voice so soon. But being able to do something creative in the face of loss was really important to me um, and I think has also been really special for me now because even since last week's episode there's been this amazing community response from Lauren's friends um, and relatives and people being really thrilled to hear us bring her personality to life in this way and um, to hear how Georgia's doing I think for you know it's hard to know grief is a pretty private process for a lot of people and I'm sure many people have you know thought about Georgia a lot over the years and wonder how she's doing so it's been really nice to be able to sort of share that with the community and also for our friendship because our mom was such an important part of our connection and it's something that really makes us still stay connected to this day Um, our shared love for her mom obviously so it's been really special yeah I mean it definitely 
reminds me of how important it is to still have these conversations with people even years after they've lost somebody because it still can be so fresh and like you mentioned a lot of people probably thought about her at different points in time so I feel like as time goes on sometimes we don't ask people how they're doing Mm -hmm. or what they need or how they're feeling about a particular loss so yeah I mean and to be like a woman in your 20s it's a very tumultuous time tons of things are changing (laughs) um and I mean, we've featured our moms on the show. You know, it's like there's still people we turn to to get that sort of, okay, but what the heck are we actually doing with our mm-hmm. lives? And so to not have that, um, I, I imagine, is really hard. Um, so, yeah, and, it, was, it was nice to reflect on that with her. And what I, if you haven't listened to last week's prequel, as we've called it, you should because her mother was so cognizant of what that absence would be like too. And one of the final things she says in that segment that we put together was Georgia asked, who am I supposed to turn to when I would still need advice and you're not here. And her mom said, still ask. Mm -hmm. And that, that moment gets me every single time. Yeah. It's a really beautiful, very human moment. It is. It really is. Well, what are you about to queue up for us? I'm about to queue up for us um, a playlist of some of Lauren's favorite songs. So for those of you who are listening to the podcast version of She and Her, um, every week when we do the live version of the show, we play music um, that is somehow thematically related to the show. And so this week we asked Georgia to put together a playlist of her mom's favorite songs. And for those of you who aren't live, you can hear this playlist by following us on Spotify at she plus her or you can go to our website sheandherradio.com and alongside each episode we put the link to the Spotify playlist and furthermore if you want a look behind the scenes access to bonus content and that sort of thing you can follow us on at she and her radio on Twitter Instagram and Facebook where we keep people apprised of our goings on we do and this week you'll be able to see some photos of Georgia and Lauren from throughout the years that Georgia shared with us so be sure to check those out yeah she and her um, is produced every week as we said at WHUP in Hillsborough our intern is Monique Laborde our theme music is composed by Cameron Laws and Sam Gerwig and We look forward to talking with y'all next week. Good night. Good night. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.